Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is Ron Baker. He is the founder of Verisage Institute. He is the author of six best-selling books, including Professional's Guide to Value Pricing and Implementing Value Pricing, a Radical Business Model for Professional Firms. So, Ron, thanks for joining me. Thank you, John. So I guess uh, let's define what is value pricing since we're going to talk about it. <laughs> well, value pricing means setting a price commensurate with the value as perceived by the customer, uh, not with your internal costs or efforts or inputs or certainly your profit desires uh, like in cost plus pricing. So it's really all about looking out to the value that you're creating for the customer and pricing commensurate with that. Could you also uh, suggest that it's let's price stuff as high as we can, or you know, whatever we can get, what the market will bear? I mean, would it would it would that no. implication come into it at all? No, that's one of the that's one of the warped views. I think that yeah. that that people have a value pricing that's absolutely incorrect. Value pricing doesn't always mean the highest price. It means a price sent set to the uh, commensurate with the value that the customer is getting. So if the customer wants a lower-valued, say, uh, Apple iPad, they can do that, or an iPod. You know, you can buy an iPod Shuffle for $49. Now, you're not going to get as much value. You're not going to be able to listen to the song that you want. It's going gonna, it's gonna to shuffle randomly. You certainly can't watch videos. It doesn't have a lot of memory. But if that's the value for you because you're just going to wear it jogging, well, then that's value pricing. Yeah, and I guess you uh, one of the challenges, you, going back to your Apple example, I think a little bit uh, there, is uh, a lot of people buy the the uh, the iPad, for example, and there are other computing tablet devices that some would suggest essentially do the same thing, you know, but people uh, perceive the value of the iPad to be much higher, uh, even if it doesn't cost Apple any more to produce it. Oh, absolutely. Um, Apple Apple's always been a premium price brand. They've never cared about market share. I don't think Apple's market share in computers ever went above 10%. Um, they didn't want to play that game like Dell and HP and Lenovo and all the others. Uh, they've always been a high-priced um, product in line with the value that the customers think they get. And you know, this is why they command a dominant share of the profits. They might not have the largest market share, but they by far and away have the majority of the industry's profits in tablets and smartphones and anything you care to look at. Yeah, and I think that's a real great lesson in that. I mean, we've been talking about products, but for service firms too, that value is very subjective. I mean, the fact that people think it's cooler or sleeker or somehow the style, you know, fits their uh, brand themselves, uh, I, I think is, is a, a lesson in, in how, just how subjective value really is. And so, you know, as a service firm, you know, what are some of the ways that, uh, that you're able to drive up value similar to what Apple's done? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I call this the first law of marketing, John. All value is subjective. And it's illustrated brilliantly, I think, by the example of if I was in the desert and I was dehydrated and I was about to die, what would a bottle of Evian water be worth to me? Well, it would be priceless because yeah. it's going to save my life. But what if I was home washing the dog or the dishes with the same quantity of water? Now it's worth a lot less. And what if I'm flooded in my basement with water? Well, now it's got a <laughs> negative value. The important point is even here with a product, we didn't change the product at all. Yeah. It's the yeah. same H2O in all three examples. 
So how do you explain it going from infinite value to negative value? You certainly can't explain that by cost because it roughly costs the same to get the water to those three places. So it's definitely driven by context and the outcome that you're trying to achieve, the utility. So that's what firms should be focusing on is they should be focusing on the outcomes that their customers want to achieve. Certainly don't focus on the inputs and certainly don't even focus on the deliverables. It's the outcomes that we buy as customers. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I have discovered certainly over the years, because I have been doing this for 20 years, uh, I, I've been selling marketing services uh, as at a set fee rather than an hourly uh, hourly rate of any type. And, and you know, a lot of that's tied to uh, the, the value that I can demonstrate or have demonstrated. But, but I think a lot of it comes down to helping the client understand that if they, if we were able to achieve their objectives, uh, what would that mean to them? And I think that when, you know, as a sales tool, even, I have found that that, that gives you great leverage. No longer are we talking about, do you want to spend $25,000 or $50,000? Um, I, I try to shift the conversation to, would an investment of $50,000 uh, return $250,000? And so in, in that equation, would that be a good investment? Right, right. And uh, it's so glad, I'm so glad to hear that you've been doing this for so long. You're probably ahead of most professional firms out there, at least, that are still stuck in this antiquated billable hour mode. But if you think about uh, the three components of a transaction, the cost, the price, and the value, and, of course, values to customer, um, you know, the customer doesn't care about our internal cost. Nobody goes into the Porsche dealership and says, oh, what an awesome car. Turns around to the salesman and says, can I see the timesheets on that? I'd like to know how long it took Porsche to make. But nobody cares. Right. What the customer wants to do with the price, of course, is to lower it. And, of course, we want to get it up to sellers. But value is something that the customer wants to maximize. And it's also something I hope that the firm wants to maximize. So right. it's the one component where our interests are completely aligned. And therefore, all conversations should start with that value, those outcomes, just like you said, because that's one place where our interests are completely aligned. And at the end of the day, it's value that drives price anyway. So from a strategic standpoint, I'd much rather have a conversation with a customer about something that they're trying to maximize rather than something they're trying to minimize or something they right. don't care about at all. Right. Um, so, so let's take on the hourly billing um, mentality and and it's still rampant certainly in professional services uh, we're talking attorneys we're talking accountants we're talking marketing consultants um, and and I've you know been training marketing consultants for um, about eight or ten years uh, using my methodology and they still encounter that that buyer that that believes that that you know, they want to know, okay, it's going to cost, your retainer is $10,000, for example. You know, how many hours am I going to get for that? You know, how do you, uh, how do you, um, how do you answer that uh, with somebody who's trying to take the posture of, of value uh, pricing? Well, this is where the firm has to draw a line in the sand. And when a customer asks for, and procurement is notorious about this, but even CMOs, We'll, we'll start discussing hours and you just have to say, well, look, our agency doesn't even do timesheets, so I can't, I don't know about hours. Yeah. And what do you care about inputs or, or outcomes? You know, are you trying to build great brands or, or are you worried about how many hours we put in? Um, so if you look at ad agencies like Crispin and Porter, for instance, with roughly a thousand people, they do nothing based on time and they don't have timesheets. Mm -hmm. And so people, the, the clients that come to them, they already know that. They know they're not going to get hours out of Christian right. Border. 
And you just have to take a stand and you have to be willing to lose some customers over it. But it's, it's your business. Yeah, I think one of the, the, the secrets to really making this work or, or maybe taking time out of the equation completely is you have to get very good, I believe, at measuring the value that you actually deliver uh, so that you can take that posture. Well, yeah, you, you certainly have to understand it more. I'm, I, I'm skeptical that we can apply any measurements to value that are in any sense scientific uh, because, you know, again, value is subjective, and I don't know how you measure something that's subjective. It's like plunging a ruler into the oven to determine its temperature. But, but that's not to say that there's not aspects of value that we can quantify. Uh, certainly agencies can quantify uh, some of the value, uh, an accounting firm, for instance, can quantify tax savings mm-hmm. and discounted cash flow. And to the extent we can do that, we should. But we also have to understand that there's a, an enormous spiritual component of value. And by spiritual, I mean it cannot be measured. You know, this is part of the brand mystery, right? There's mystery, there's margin and mystery. Look at Apple's, uh, yes. you know, how, how much of Apple's value can be quantified you know, um, and how much of it is because of their brand, because of their service, because of their just coolness as a company. These things aren't necessarily measurable, but they're an integral component of the value. How have some firms gone about then, you know, really embracing this and and not just packaging their services and, and you know, creating, you know, kind of set deliverables for a set price? Um, how, have, how have firms gone about maximizing you know, value pricing, or, or at the very least, implementing it? Well, I, there's several, there, there's there's few different things that we we, we have found has, have been critical for a firm that wants to make this transition. One, I think, is to uh, put experts in charge or, or put people who are competent at pricing in charge of it. So what a firm needs to do is turn pricing into a core competency. And by that, I mean establish a value council I'm even a big believer in appointing a chief value officer. So there's one person who's responsible for pricing across the entire firm. I want one throat to choke. And and then that way, these people, just like marketers protect the brand integrity of a firm, the pricers protect the pricing integrity of the firm. And because pricing is part of marketing, that's that's a critical function. Because price is the number one driver of profitability in any business. I mean, nothing even comes close. Not rainmaking, not cutting costs, not driving efficiency. Nothing comes as close to pricing for driving profits. So the goal of a pricer is profitability. So pricers have a great saying, you innovate for growth, but you price for profit. So, so would you say, in your uh, experience, that people tend to uh, underprice, uh, pr- particularly for professional services? Yeah, I, I think they do on some things. On some things, I think they're overpriced. I mean, we have a lot of surgeons piercing ears yeah. in professional firms. I mean, I don't need a constitutional lawyer to do a real estate conveyance. Yeah. But because firms and their people in them are incentivized based on billable hours, you know, they'll do anything just to keep the hours, even though it may be way below their their capacity, you know, their intellectual capital, not a good allocation of it. Um, But yeah, I I, I think that a lot of people do leave money on the table. And one of the reasons for it, John, is our measurements. 
the billable hour, the realization, the utilization, the cost accounting, even accounting itself cannot measure the most important question that a pricer has to grapple with every day, and that is, how much money did I leave on the table today? No accounting can, can answer that. The only way to get a grip on how much money you're leaving on the table is to understand value from the customer's perspective. And we only do that by looking outwards, not inwards at costs and efforts and efficiency and even project management and scope and all this other stuff that's going on with agile and lean and all this. It's all inside. Value exists on the outside. I know I've seen you write quite a bit about it and you see certainly a lot of firms, particularly online, uh, taking advantage of this idea of good, better, best pricing or you know, options at least. And, and psychologically, some of those options lead to the most profitable <laughs> choice for, for the organization. Um, what's your view of, of that as a pricing strategy? Well, we, I'm a big believer in choice, but, but I think before I, I, I need to make clear that we already talked about, I think I mentioned the first law of, of marketing, which is all value is subjective. Well, there's a second law. And the second law is all prices are contextual. So if I said to you, John, would you like to buy my unicorn, you'd have no idea what to pay because I, my guess is you've never bought a unicorn before. So what we're willing to pay for something as a human is insanely determined by what we're comparing it to, right? Yeah. This is why we'll spend a little uh, a dollar on those little, uh, on those little pods for coffee because we're not comparing it to buying a can of coffee. We're comparing it to $4 Starbucks, yeah. right? So the context is really important. And what options do is they allow you to create that context in that now you've got the customer comparing you to you, which is much better than having them compare you to a comp competitor. So if your firm does RFPs or tenders, offering choices is an incredibly powerful strategy because all the other uh, tenders probably just came in with one price, take it or leave it, and now you're giving options. And I think what makes that so powerful from an economic perspective is you've changed the customer's question from should I work with John to how should I work with John when you put options in front of somebody. But as, as a big advocate as I am of options, they still need to be customized one customer at a time. I'm a big believer that we need to move away from pricing services to pricing the customer. Because if value is subjective, then different customers are going to value different, you know, uh, the same thing differently. And therefore, the, the customer needs to be priced. And this is what you're seeing with airlines, rental car companies, and hotels. They're not so much pricing the seats. They're pricing the customers in the seats, depending on what they're doing at their destination. Yeah, and of course that, you know, again, I keep going back to the service businesses, but uh, is that potentially open up a, a can of worms when when, you know, Client A and client B play golf together? Well, let me ask you this. Does it open up a can of worms when we sit in the same airplane together? <laughs> no question. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I'm always the, getting the cheapest prices, so I don't ever say anything. <laughs> <laughs> but if you think about the airlines, they, they, they don't care. Yeah. They had the guts to do this, and they put us in the same tube. But, but think about this. I mean, when I hear firms tell me that they can't move away from hourly billing because the customers have been trained yeah. uh, in it and, and they know it and everybody's familiar with it, I, I, I look at them and I say, you know, the airlines move to yield management, which is very sophisticated pricing, mm -hmm. in, in a period of two years. 
And after they were deregulated in the late 70s, if you were to buy an airline ticket and you found out that you paid 10 times more than the person sitting next to you, my guess is you'd be, you would have been pissed at the airline. Today, and probably since about 1982, if you found out that you paid more than the person sitting next to you, who would you be mad at? You'd be <laughs> mad at yourself. Right. So you can, the, how the airlines re-educate us around the world that this type of pricing was okay. So the two guys playing golf, look, no two services are the exact same. Right. I, I reject that premise. Yeah. And it's kind of like gl- glasses prescription, right? No two are going to be alike. If you can't um, have enough creativity to differentiate offerings and the prices thereof, <laughs> then, then I think there's a, a, a bigger problem in your business. Let me tell you another thing, of course, that marketing consultants deal with all the time, uh, particularly those that I've you know, tried to try to hold their feet to the fire on this idea of, of fixed price agreements, um, is that everybody agrees to the agreement and then the client says, oh, but I need this and this and this and, oh, can't you just do this? And, and obviously some of that's, you know, <laughs> some of that's bad processes, bad management, <laughs> caving because you caving because you think you're going to lose the client if you don't. Uh, but that's a real problem, I think, with um, with value pricing, isn't it? Um, that I, it may not be, I'm not suggesting you can't overcome that and there aren't ways to overcome that, but that's a real challenge, I think, in the service industries. It, it, it is. I mean, there's no doubt. And I think a lot of it, John, reflects the fact that we don't do a, a good enough job with that value conversation. Right. The other thing we're really lousy at as service providers is we don't spend enough time on diagnostics. You know, if a surgeon or a doctor prescribed without diagnosing, we call that malpractice. But we'll just dive into something without giving, without giving any thought to pre-planning, reconnaissance, uh, a needs and analysis assessment, whatever. I mean, the military's got a great saying that time spent in reconnaissance is never wasted. Mm-hmm. And we should probably spend more time up front with diagnostic because I think that alleviates some of these concerns. And then by focusing on the outcome the client wants, it's much easier to scope a job. And But if something does come up outside of the control of both parties, then we handle that the way a contractor or an auto mechanic would. We use a change request, right. and and that could lead to a change order, which may or may not lead to a price difference. I mean, sometimes it's just, hey, we're not going to finish by the promised deadline. It's going to take longer now. But a lot of the times it does lead to a change in price. So that's a very sophisticated pricing methodology, the change order, that is completely unused by yeah. most professional firms. Yeah, yeah, and, you, you know, that's a, that's a great – I'm, I'm even going to call it an analogy because it is isn't used um, in professional firms. But uh, you know, I'm I'm envisioning what a tremendous way to keep the CFO happy. You know, at that other company too, because now somebody's not coming and saying, "Oh, we paid more because we asked them to do more." You know, which is yeah, <laughs> it, it, it it does. It keeps the customer in control, but it maintains the pricing leverage of of the firm and and why we haven't adopted this just has always baffled yeah. me because it is such a sophisticated tool. I'm going to start using it right now. Um, <laughs> so so uh, there is um we we we've come to uh um the the end of our time um and uh but I wanted to give you an opportunity and of course I'll put you on the spot here because I'm going to ask you for an exact quote. 
Um, and I've written a number of books too, and I know sometimes, sometimes it's difficult for me when somebody says, on page 67, you said, uh, but uh, um, you have a great line about how an opening statement to begin a conversation about value pricing. Um, you know, Mr. Common, Mr. Customer, we will. Is that is that something that you can? Yes, Mr. Customer, we will only undertake this engagement if we can agree to our mutual satisfaction that the value we are creating for you is greater than the price we're charging you. Is that acceptable? <laughs> and I think that's really a brilliant, brilliant framing for you know how to get that conversation well, started. And, and, and John, I shamelessly stole that, plagiarized that almost word for word from probably the most successful professional firm on the planet, which is McKinsey and yeah. Company. That's how they open up every single engagement. New customer, existing customer, doesn't matter. That's how they start every conversation. And that's putting it on the right foot because now you're focused on value, not price, not costs, but value. Yeah, and I, and I think a lot of times, you know, we, we, we fail to have that conversation and we don't even dig for where value would be delivered. I mean, a lot of times we're so set on, oh, we want to deliver this engagement or we want to do this project. And even the client doesn't sit around and, and or, or we certainly don't help the client understand the value they're going to receive. And, and consequently, you know, that's when, you know, when people start saying, why are we paying for that? <laughs> you know, what are we getting for right. that now? And, uh, and I think this is kind of a dereliction of our duty as professionals. Yep. I mean, customers don't want us to be their partners. They didn't ask for us to be their partners. They want leadership from us. We're supposed to have a certain core competency. I mean, we've done this before, right? The last thing I want to hear from my heart surgeon being wheeled into OR is, oh, wow, look at that. I've never seen that before. <laughs> right. So I, th- we need to demonstrate more leadership. And I think if we spend more time up front on that value conversation, then the scoping becomes much easier. And the need, I mean, if you're good at the value conversation, you probably won't need change orders. Yeah, and and you you the other thing that'll happen is you won't walk into you know a nightmare client, exactly. Uh, and that's you know that's that's where I think people can probably relate even more. Is gosh, I didn't ask those tough questions, and look where I am now. Right, you can't value price the wrong client. Yeah, and and the wrong client is not a pricing problem. That's a customer selection, which is a strategy, positioning, all the stuff that you probably talk yeah. about. Yeah. yeah. Well, Ron, thanks so much for, for joining us. Um, is there some place that, uh, that you might send uh, listeners to, uh, to find out more about uh, your uh, work and your, uh, your books, obviously? Yeah, the, the best place to go is, is uh, our website at verisage.com, which is in V is v in Victor, E-R-A-S-A-G-E.com. We also do a radio show, John, uh, The Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy where we talk a lot about these issues and you can find that at, at verisage.com slash tsoe you'll see the little tag up there for the radio show we've got all our our shows are archived we were on the voice america network and so you can listen there you can subscribe on itunes and me and my colleague at Clust do that and we talk a lot about these issues pricing and just business and the knowledge economy and how that's really different from business and the service economy or the industrial economy Great. I, I know Ed. haven't seen him for a few years, but uh, I, I spoke at a number of SAGE conferences, and he, uh, he certainly ends up uh, at a lot of those as well. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, Ron. I appreciate it, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, bump into you out there on the road someday. Excellent. Thanks, John. 